Welcome back to EU Democracy Explained. In the last two episodes, we've followed the story of European democracy through the European Commission and the Council of the European Union. We've also discovered some of the most important concepts when it comes to democracy in the EU, such as accountability. Today, we complete the institutional triangle and tackle a new concept, representation, by discussing an institution that you're probably already familiar with, the European Parliament. It might be tempting to look at the European Parliament through the lens of what you may already know about national parliaments, but you can't really compare the EU to any national system. It is its own unique thing. And that poses a problem when it comes to exploring whether the EU is democratic because most people's basic understanding of what democracy is and isn't is rooted in their understanding of national systems, where a country's government is precisely that, one country's government. In contrast, today's European Union includes 27 countries. And that's why the modern EU's legitimacy rests on two foundations. That which is granted by the 27 democratically elected governments themselves, which we discovered with the Council last episode, and that which is granted by European citizens. So let's recap. The Institutional Triangle is where European legislation gets made. The European Commission, representing the interests of the EU as a whole, proposes new legislation. In most, but not all, circumstances, that proposal needs to be approved by the two bodies that represent the two foundations of legitimacy, the Council of the European Union, representing the 27 governments, and the European Parliament, representing European citizens. The Parliament has its origins at the very beginning of the European project, starting out as the common assembly of the European coal and steel community. When, in 1957, the European Economic Community and Eurotom were created, the Assembly came to be shared between these three entities. The new European Parliamentary Assembly met for the first time in March 1958. But the Assembly's democratic character was very different to that of the modern Parliament, and this is where our story begins. Deputies at the time were nominated by each of the national parliaments, and the Assembly only had consultative power. Throughout the 1970s, though, the system was pushed to reform. Direct elections took place for the first time in 1979, and in subsequent changes to the European Constituent Treaties, the Parliament took on more and more legislative power. Today's European Parliament has over 700 members, or MEPs, representing 450 million Europeans in 27 member states. It works in the 24 official languages of the EU too, so all of the diverse viewpoints from across the EU can be heard. But why is it so important that members be directly elected? To understand this, we need to understand representation. And to understand representation, we have to go back to the earliest days of modern democracy and discover something called the polity. A polity is a group of people which can be defined, meaning you can tell who's part of it and who isn't. It's capable, through the legal rights of its members, of organising itself and taking internal decisions. And, via a system of governance, it does so. So, you want to create a democracy you know that this means you need a polity, and that this polity should be empowered to take decisions. When the first modern democracies arose, states already had set boundaries in the form of borders. For them, the logical step was to limit the polity to those who were within those borders. These early democracies, though, were far from perfect. All too often, only men who owned land were considered worthy of having a say in government, thus excluding a great share of the population. But even with a polity which was so restricted, it was already clear that it would be unsustainable for all polity members to decide everything all the time. 
Their answer was, and in many democracies of the world still is, representation. Representation allows you to vote not for or against specific policy proposals, but for political candidates. The candidate who's eventually elected, whether you voted for them or not, represents you. They propose, amend, discuss and vote on legislation on your behalf. And then they have a duty to report back to you what they've been doing as your representative. If you recall the concept of vertical accountability from episode 1, when citizens are unsatisfied with the person representing them, they can vote for someone different next time around. When representative democracy works well, it incorporates representation, accountability and effective governance. So let's come back to the question of representation in the European Parliament. Before 1979, members were nominated at the national level. Now, there is a kernel of legitimacy there. Those nominating the members were themselves democratically elected, and those with the legislative power in Europe at the time, the ministers in the council, were also part of democratically elected national governments. But as the European project grew, and its impact on people's everyday lives grew, it became clear that a new layer of democratic legitimacy was needed. One of the most important aspects of representation is that citizens need to feel like they have a stake in the decisions being made by their governments. And if people are unfamiliar with the system, it's difficult for them to feel like they have a stake because they don't see it in their day-to-day -day interactions with politics. So how does the European Parliament work? Elections take place every five years under direct universal suffrage with over 450 million Europeans eligible to vote. This makes them one of the largest democratic exercises in the world. But unlike national elections, they need to take into account citizens from 27 member states of varying sizes. Without reasonable safeguards, it would be all too easy for the citizens of a country like Germany, with a population of over 80 million, to overrule the citizens of a country like Malta, with a population of only half a million. Clearly, to give citizens of these smaller countries a fair say on EU legislation, you need a system that accounts for this. Equally though, going too far in the other direction would mean the votes in a country like Germany would be devalued as well. To find this careful balance, seats in the European Parliament are allocated according to the principle of digressive proportionality. A set number of seats are given to each member state based on population, but smaller countries are allocated more seats than they otherwise would be if that allocation was strictly based on population size. As such, no country can be allocated fewer than six or more than 96 seats in Parliament. The system is designed to make sure everyone gets their fair share of input and no one is silenced. So, we have our seats, now we need to fill them. It's up to each member state to manage its own election, according to a series of common rules. The first is that any EU citizen resident in another EU country has the right to vote and stand for election in that country. The second is that European elections must take place based on proportional representation. And the third establishes a number of incompatibilities, whereby someone cannot be a member of the European Parliament in addition to being, for instance, a member of a national parliament. In other words, being an MEP should be your main job in politics. Beyond these, though, all the other arrangements are subject to national provisions. Austria, for instance, operates the elections as a single national constituency rather than several regional ones. Belgium, meanwhile, has extended the voting age for the 2024 European elections so that citizens can vote as of the age of 16. It's all down to the preference of each country. Once they arrive in Parliament, 
members organised themselves into a number of groups according to political leanings, from left to right. With a union of so many member states, having each parliamentarian affiliated to a national party would create confusion and hinder the legislative process. Instead, the political groups simplify things, creating blocks within which members can negotiate and vote according to a shared political outlook. Now, one criticism of this approach is that it's too much of a halfway house. Citizens vote for candidates who stand in national constituencies as members of a national party, and then they go to Parliament and gain a new unfamiliar affiliation, becoming part of an unfamiliar European political group. To resolve this, some have suggested the use of transnational lists, where candidates would stand in a single pan-European constituency. But this debate is still very much in progress. Ultimately, MEPs are citizens' directly elected representatives in Europe. So what do they actually do? Nowadays, the European Parliament is on a more equal footing with the Council of the European Union via the ordinary legislative procedure. Under this procedure, also known as co-decision, no legislation can pass without the consent both of the Council and of the Parliament. And since 2009, crucial policy areas such as security and justice, agriculture and fisheries, and many more, have come under this procedure. So MEPs have more of an input on more policies than ever before. This being said, there are still areas like taxation policy where it doesn't apply. In these cases, the Parliament does still have a consultative role, but its advice is not binding. Another change surrounds the appointment of the European Commission's President, which, since the 2009 Lisbon Treaty, is required to take into account the European elections. You might remember in episode 1 where we discussed this process and touched on the fact that some find it problematic arguing that nomination by the European Council and approval by the Parliament was not a direct enough way of selecting the Commission President. And in response to those concerns, in 2014 the Parliament introduced the so-called Spitzenkandidaten process. Under this process, a candidate nominated by the leading group in the new Parliament would become President of the Commission. In 2014, Jean-Claude Juncker, the candidate championed by the European People's Party, the largest in the Parliament at the time, became President. But the Spitzenkandidaten process was never really accepted by the European Council, which felt that it went against the word and spirit of the rules set out in the treaty. So, after the next elections in 2019, the heads of state or government nominated Ursula von der Leyen, who, while a member of the largest political group, had not been its candidate. The question was where to draw the line in the interpretation of the treaty. What did it really mean for the appointment of the Commission President to take into account the European elections? While the Parliament argued that the process made the Commission more democratically legitimate, there are two main critiques. The first was that some felt the Parliament was only trying to wrestle power away from the European Council, an inter-institutional power play. The second was that while such a system might be a step in the right direction, some argued that the only truly democratic way would be to leave the decision to the citizens in an election. The experiment only lasted one term, becoming a political tug-of-war. Finally, there's the question of legislative initiative. Now, the right of initiative is crucial in a representative democracy because it allows elected representatives to draft and vote on proposals on behalf of the citizens they represent. Now, the EU system, as we discussed earlier, is unique. The Parliament represents the European citizens, the Council represents the national governments, and the Commission represents the interests of the EU as a whole. On that basis, the right of initiative rests with the Commission alone. 
Now, in a more traditional interpretation of democracy theory, a parliament not having the right of initiative does seem odd. And in 2022, the European Parliament said as much, stating in a June resolution that it should be granted a general and direct right to initiate legislation. As always, though, things aren't quite that simple. The Parliament does have a direct right of initiative for proposals regarding its own function. And it can also, like the Council, ask the Commission to submit a proposal on a given topic. And let's return to the question of decision-making. If the Parliament were to gain a full right of initiative, should the Council not gain it as well? After all, the ordinary legislative procedure means both institutions approve legislation in co-decision. We have to remember that the EU is a unique system, and therefore that imposing this traditional interpretation of democracy theory, which is mostly used to analyse individual countries rather than something as unique as the European Union, might not help us understand it fully. In the end, though, the right of initiative remains an open question. And while the Parliament continues to push for reform, a change of system looks unlikely in the short or medium term. Democracy in the European Parliament is a complex picture. It develops slowly and can legitimately be critiqued. But ultimately, it remains one of the world's most significant exercises in representation. So tell us what you think. Is the EU democratic enough? How should the Commission President be appointed after the next elections? And what about the right of initiative? This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The views and opinions expressed are, however, those of the authors only and do not necessarily reflect those of the European Union or the European Education and Culture Executive Agency. Neither the European Union nor the granting authority can be held responsible for them.